Would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and you're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. And I invite you to stand up if you can. Hebrews chapter 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy upon us. We deserve hell outside Christ so we give you all the glory and all the thanks and all the praises for saving us redeeming us adopting us thank you for this wonderful family we thank you for other church families in town and we pray your blessing upon your people today Help me to be faithful. I I say amen to our brother Dan's prayer. Help me to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful. We need your Holy Spirit right here, right now, to open our eyes, open our ears. So I pray that you'll feed us with the bread of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our memory is a fascinating tool, the memory that we have. I was thinking about how sin affected and infected our memories in the way that we are so quickly to forget good and beautiful and truthful things but we are so quick to remember wrongdoings done towards us. Harsh things done tr- towards us. Isn't that true? How quick we are to remember sins committed against us. But how slow we are to remember the glorious and beautiful and profound truths of the Word of God. So, with this in mind, I know that most of us do not remember very well what we have seen so far in our series on this overview of the Bible. Amen? I know because I preach and I forget what I preached. So how much more you? 
I know that if I ask you what, what was the first sermon all about or the third sermon all, are, all about, and you're going to say, I have no idea. So I decided this Sunday to take some time and review what we have seen so far. Because I plan to continue preaching through this series on the Bible. So that's the plan for today. It's to review and add a little bit here and there. So next Lord's Day we can start moving once again with this wonderful series. So... I opened this series, I, I opened this, I finished Philippians, and often I do that, I finish a book, then I have a, a theme, and I go back to a book, and I finished Philippians, and we start this series on the overview of the Bible, and I said how important it is for us to have an overview of the, the whole story of the Bible, especially with expository preaching, sometimes we get lost with one tree. And it's a beautiful thing to analyze and study and see all the details of that one tree. But oftentimes we cannot see the beauty of the whole forest. Similarly, if you're climbing a mountain, as you're climbing that mountain, your eyes are just where you are. But it's when you're up there that you can see the whole mountain range and, and standing off the beauty of what God has done. So that's how we open, talk about the importance of having an overview of the Scripture. So many Christians, they have been in church for years, and they have no idea how to put the Bible together. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. Christians who have been professing to be Christians for decades, years, and they have no idea how the books of the Bible fit together. How the story of the Scriptures come together. So that's the plan. The first, the first sermon following this introduction was about the foundational presuppositions that we have as we are approaching the Bible. The primary premises that we have when you are studying the Scriptures. And we are very clear, everybody has presuppositions, we just need to be clear about our presuppositions. And we open by saying that the Bible is inspired by God. The inspiration of the Scriptures. That's the first thing that we saw. How the Scriptures, they are not the product of man, but of God through man. So we saw 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own and I think that was a bad translation there. His own fabrication or creation would be a better translation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul similarly, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, Theopnostos. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we saw that the Bible is about God. The Bible is God's word. It's about Him. And not only about Him, but it belongs to Him. It's from Him. We believe that the Bible originated from God and was given by God as His saving speech. 
And why is that important when you're studying these scriptures? Because it's the understanding that the Bible has one main author, that we have coherence. You see, the problem with all those German liberal theologians was that they believed that there was not one body of inspired scriptures. That's why they tried to divide the Torah. And, oh, you have this author here, and have this author there. And these stories, they don't make any sense. But when you understand, no, there is one main author, and that's God. Then we have the duty to seek and find the coherence of the scriptures. Amen? Then we move to inerrancy. Inspiration leads to inerrancy. The Bible is inerrant. Free of error in the original manuscripts. Inerrancy and infallibility. The Bible is not only inerrant, but it's infallible, meaning it's impossible to err. Why is the Bible impossible to err? To have errors. Because of the author. Amen? God is the author, and in Him there is no error, no lie. Therefore, His Word has no error and no lie. Theology, Christology, they are inseparable from bibliology. You have heard people saying about bibliolatry, people who idolize the Bible. It's, it's impossible. The Bible is inseparable from the character of God. We can't. We know God by knowing His Word. Since all Scripture is breathed out by the only true and faithful God, then the theological conclusion is that what He says is true and trustworthy. That's why I always use the capital letters when I'm referring to the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures. You can't separate God, Jesus, the Word from this Word here. Amen? It's inseparable. It's part of His character. John Calvin says, we owe, we owe to the Scriptures the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him alone. That's why we stand when you're reading God's Word. That's why God appears to the prophets through His Word. You cannot separate Jesus from this Word here. You cannot separate God from His Word, the Holy Spirit from His Word. That's from His inner being. That's His revelation. So... We saw this very important aspect of inerrancy. And then from inerrancy, moving from inspiration, we saw that the Bible is authoritative. There is an inherent authority in the Bible. It's an inheritance from the inspiration, inerrancy. Therefore, the, the Bible becomes the only source of authority when it comes to godliness, salvation in the life of the Christian. John Frame says, Divine authorship is the ultimate reason why Scripture is authoritative. Its authority is absolute because God's authority is absolute. And Scripture is His personal word to us. And then we move to illumination. That was the last premise that we had, and that goes back to inspiration, God-inspired. Since the Word of God is 
supernatural. It's coming from God. Therefore, we need the Holy Spirit to help us, to empower us, to enable us to understand His Word. Amen? In light of the fact that the Bible is a book breathed out by God, a supernatural work done by the Spirit of God, we need God's Spirit to enable us to receive and understand His revelation. We need the Spirit's work of authentication and illumination. He must impress in our hearts, authenticate, that's the truth. And then we need Him to continue opening our eyes to behold His beauty there. The Holy Spirit is the author, revealer, teacher, and interpreter of the Bible. And that's why we call upon the name of the Lord before the preaching, during the preaching, and after the preaching. Amen? When you come here to pray and ask God's blessing and help, that's not a, a man-made thing. It's because we need the Holy Spirit. And some of you, you have a hard time reading your Bibles at home. It's because you think you can do that on your own. You think you can just open the Bible and on your own see the beauty of God. And you, forgot, you forget that you need to cry out, Lord, Holy Spirit, open my eyes so I may behold beautiful things in your instruction. So we need to live holy lives, cry out for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to understand His Holy Word. Amen? That was illumination. In the third sermon, we look at the canon of the Scriptures. That's a very crucial subject as we are coming to understanding the whole storyline. So which books God inspired if God inspired some books, which books are those? And you, I think a vital question to ask when you're studying about canon and, and trying to understand the importance of canon, why, why, why is the canon important? Is to ask this question. Which books would I be willing to die for? Let's suppose you're a missionary in... China or North Korea, and you have a text from 2nd Maccabees, and they ask you with a gun pointed to your head, are you carrying what you believe to be God's word? Would you die for 2nd Maccabees? But if you have a piece of Numbers or Leviticus in your pocket and they ask you, would you be willing? Do you believe that that's God's Word inspired by the Holy Spirit and you'd be willing to die for that? You see, that, that's how important it is to, to have a, an understanding of the canon of Scriptures. The word Bible, we often use the word Bible coming from the Latin Biblia and from the Greek, Biblios, but especially the Latin, there could be a singular book, and that's the idea. It's one book with many other books inside. And these other books are the inspired books. So we can define the canon, the canon of the Bible, as the body of inspired writings that God has given to rule His church. The Christian canon is composed of 66 books, 39 or 24, depending how you organize your Old Testament, and then 27 in the New Testament. As Thomas Watson said, the two testaments are the two lips 
by which God has spoken to us. And just think about this, the nature, the nature of the, the Bible requires a canon. Since we believe that God has spoken through these writings and not through other writings, the canon is a necessity. The covenantal nature of the, bio, of the Bible requires a canon of scriptures. So, I have here, by virtue, by virtue of the divine origin. Here's important, brothers and sisters. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, and especially after the Da Vinci Code, they start believing that man created the Bible. That there was a council, there was a council, and they created the Bible. No. The Bible creates the church. The Bible creates us as new men and new women in Christ. We don't create the Bible. So by virtue of the divine origin and divine inspiration, the scriptures have an internal power of self-authentication and self-validation. Man does not determine which books are inspired. The books themselves self-authenticate their divine origin and therefore their canonicity. It's very important. So, so, much, so many arguments about how to decide. It's simple. God defines which books and decides which books are His by inspiration. The church simply recognizes the voice of the Good Shepherd in these books. Amen? So, all these things we covered, I think, in, in an hour. So, I'm going through in 30 seconds, maybe. So, if you want to know more, just go back or you can send me an email and I can send you my notes. And then we move to start looking at the scriptures as a story. And we saw the Bible as one glorious drama of redemption. And we walk through each word. Do you remember the word drama? What it means? We walk through the word glorious. Why it's a glorious drama? We walk through the word God. Why is it God's glorious drama, not man's? drum of redemption. We walk through the word redemption. So, just so you can remember these things and be fresh in your mind. We also saw that in this drum of scriptures, this drum is marked by comedy. Remember ancient comedy? What is the shape of an ancient comedy? The U-shape. Remember kind of the smile? And that's how the Bible is. It starts well, then you have tension, goes down to affliction and suffering, and then you have a wonderful ending. We look at the two major acts in this drama. You have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Act 1 and Act 2, and then you have sub-acts. And we divide it in creation, fall and exile, Israel, Christ, church, and new creation, then you remember we had that drawing showing the whole comedy of redemption, the whole drama of redemption. Are we good here? Remembering, refreshing our minds. And then we moved to the covenantal nature of the Bible. The covenantal nature of the Bible. The Bible is the book of the covenant. And we saw that our triune God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who relates to His people through covenants. God's Word is covenantal in nature. The Bible, our English Bibles, are divided in two major portions, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
The word testament that we use in English derives from the Latin testamentum. That's deriving from the Greek and going back to the Hebrew, beriti, the covenant. That's the, the idea here. Eugene, Eugene Merrill, a scholar, he says, The Bible does not merely, not only contain cov covenant records, but is itself, in its entirety, a covenant document. Okay. So God reveals himself to his people in a covenantal way. We, we often divide revelation in two aspects. Do you remember revelation? We talk about two types of revelation. Which one? General and what? Special revelation. General revelation usually we refer to the nature, God's creation, how that declares the glory of God. But we know that that cannot save people. And I prefer the word, instead of saying special revelation, covenantal revelation. Because just His covenant people receive His saving Revelation of who He is, the Savior, the Redeemer, not only Creator. And then we saw that the Bible also, the canon has a covenantal structure, especially as we look at the Old Testament as the Tanakh in its Hebrew construction. Comparing to the New Testament, we saw that there is a covenantal structure to the canon. And we start talking, here's where I want to stop and spend more time with you. The covenantal framework or the backbone of the Bible. How God's glorious drum of redemption it has a, a framework, a plot structure that holds this story together. And the, and the structure are the covenants. Every, every story has, should have a plot, right? Every story, every movie should have a... a, a a plot, a plot structure that, that guides us with the meaning of the story. So there are some movies website and you go and you check the movie you're looking at and they're going to have the plot, how, how the movie is structured. And I told you that there is one movie that we disagree here that it has no plot structure. And I'm not going to say that again. My wife said I was kind of rude, the way I talk about that. <laughs> but, and they're laughing because they know what movie that is. But a lot of the new movies too, they're so imbecile there. It's, a, it's just revealing the depravity of the mind today. So, but honestly, every good story, every good movie has a plot, something that's holding the story together. And that's what we see in the Bible. The Bible's framework, which holds the whole story of redemption together, is God's covenants. The biblical, the biblical covenants provide the entire substructure to the plot line of Scripture. Or as some scholar says, that's the backbone of the Bible. Remember the backbone that brings the structure to the Scriptures, the covenants. So the covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, it drives the story of redemption until it, find, until it finds its fulfillment and culmination in Jesus Christ and the new covenant. So why, why is it important? What is the point of this when you're studying an overview of the Bible? 
Very simple. If we want to have an overview of the Bible, we need to see how this overview is going to be held together. What is the structure that holds the story of the Bible with coherence, with unity? And I believe that's the covenants. There are many different types of covenants in the Bible. The, the word for covenant in Hebrew appears hundreds of times. You have covenants between Abraham and Abimelech, between Joshua and the Gibeonites. You have a covenant between David and Jonathan, between David and the elders of Israel. You have marriage covenant and so on. But I believe, and I'm not alone here, many faithful scholars believe that there are six major covenants. They stand out as prominent and unique that hold the whole story of the Bible together. And these covenants impact not just one individual or one group of people, actually impact the whole people of God. And that would be the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and then the new covenant. The six covenants I and many others would hold as the main framework that the story of the Bible is held together. So there is some debate as how to divide these covenants, how we should divide that. So uh, especially in Reformed circles, you have the, the covenant theology, and they will have three divisions of the covenants. They will say that there is the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of works. So that's how most Theologians, especially in Reformed circles, they're going to divide the covenants. They have the covenant of uh, redemption, that's in eternity. Then you have the covenant of works, primarily with Adam and, and Israel. Then they have the covenant of grace. And within these covenants, they also divide between unconditional and then conditional covenants. Uh, similar with the disp dispensational theology, they will hold to this Uncondition, unconditionality promises, so for example, promises to Abraham and to Israel, it's unconditional, so that cannot be fulfilled in Christ, that must be fulfilled to the nation of Israel. I just think that trying to cut a sharp delineation between conditional or unconditional, covenant of works, covenant of grace, I, I think it's flawed. That's just my interpretation, my take of the covenants. The essence of the covenant relationship is composed of both elements. Every single covenant, you've got to have works and you've got to have grace. I have a hard time saying, oh, do you see, if Adam was faithful, he would be saved eternally by his works. How about God's grace in sustaining, creating him? So that's just my, my take and how I will explore here. Uh, Jeffrey Niehaus, he has a really good series on covenants and, and he divides the covenants in common grace covenants so common grace covenant with Adam and Noah and then he has special grace covenant still I have a hard time because to say that the covenant with Adam and Noah it's just common grace it, it's a mistake there are elements of special grace the seed the seed is right there it's the covenant with Noah with Adam, the preservation of the seed that will come redemption. So, I think the, the better way is to see the covenants moving progressively with the revelation of God. So, would label as progressive covenantalism. 
You see the six covenants as the progressive revelation of God's one plan of redemption. So the kingdom of God, God's reign and presence among His people comes through these diverse and yet unified covenants. That's how I see, and I'm not alone. So, for example, Gentry and Wellam, they write, the covenants are not independent and unrelated to each other. It's not like, oh, here's the covenant of grace and here's the covenant of works. And No, the covenants are all related to each other. Rather, they build on each other, disclosing to us God's plan. As the covenants unfold, we discover how God's promises to restore His elect to covenant relationship with Him from every tribe, people, and tongue is ultimately achieved through the obedient work of His Son, which was His plan from all eternity. And that's very important to see how these covenants develop with revelation. We were singing here, I stand on every promise of your word. Amen. But every promise understood in its covenantal context. Amen. And especially now we, under the new covenant, we interpret and we apply those promises now in Christ. The head of the new covenant. That leads us to how God reveals himself. So if the covenants are an essential part of God's revelation, we need to understand God's revelation. And God reveals himself progressively, little by little. That's what you mean by progressively, okay? Not the political idea of being progressive, but progressively means little by little. That's how God revealed himself. He didn't come and just gave us one, one moment. Here you go, boom. No, he has been revealing himself until the coming of Christ little by little. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us. That's what we read in the beginning. Look at the author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, at many times, the time of Adam, the time of Noah, the time of Abraham, the time of Moses, the time of David, the time of Isaiah, the time of Malachi, at many times. And then he says, and in many ways, through different oracles, visions, dreams, different types of genre, God revealed Himself. But He now, in these last days, He spoke to us through His final revelation, who is the Son. The Son. Adam was a son of God. David was a son of God. Israel was a son of God. And now it comes to ultimate fulfillment in the Son, who is Jesus Christ. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Oh, I will skip this. I, I, I had a, it's a long quote, and I'll save that. I'll send in my notes, and you can read. So, we must know the progression of these covenants and how each covenant builds on the previous one and then how all the covenants find their telos, their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We saw... I also showed this one, Jason DeRouche. He has... I think it's a very good analogy to the covenants. He compares the covenants with an hourglass and how the covenants start coming down until they find their culmination in Christ Jesus and then develops into the new covenant community. So there is more that could be said. Uh, I will talk more about intentional 
foreshadowing, typology. Those are very important things as you're studying the scriptures to see how Adam, he's intentionally foreshadowing Noah, in Abraham, in Moses, in the nation of Israel, in David, in Solomon, and then ultimately Jesus fulfills that. So you have intentional foreshadowing, you have typology, all these wonderful things that most of you are tripping right now. You have no idea what I'm talking about. And some of you are really excited to know more. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Amen? Uh, so, here's what I want us to keep in mind as we are thinking about the covenants, how the covenants are crucial to understand the scriptures. They're vital to understand the story of the Bible. You cannot understand Jesus apart from Adam, apart from Noah, apart from Abraham, apart from Israel, apart from David. It makes no sense. That's why the Gospels, they begin tracing Jesus all the way to the Old Testament. Luke begins his Gospel by tracing Jesus to Adam. Matthew starts his Gospel by tracing Jesus to David and, and Abraham. Mark traces his gospel to Isaiah in Exodus. John traces Jesus all the way back to eternity. So you cannot have Jesus without understanding this covenantal structure of the scriptures. But then it becomes tempting to think that the covenants are the most important thing in the Bible. And that's what I want you to to know, and I want to remind you, no, the covenant is not the center theme of the Bible. The covenants help us to understand the main theme and the main story, the main, main meaning of the Scriptures. The covenants serve one main, main purpose. And what is that purpose? God dwelling with man. That's the main purpose. The covenants are important because of what they accomplish. A relationship of faithfulness and love between God and His people. When we think about the importance of the covenants in the drum of scriptures, we must remember the heart of the covenant. And what is the heart of the covenant? I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heart of the covenant. A covenantal personal relationship between God and His people. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the Bible. God dwelling with His people. God's personal, covenantal, loving, gracious, merciful relationship with His people. How do we know that? Just look how the book begins and how the book ends. That's simple. The book begins with God creating men to dwell with Him. He places men in a very specific temple to dwell with him and the Bible ends with what? How does the Bible end? God and man dwelling together. Okay, so you know just by looking the book ends you know what the Bible is all about. And why does Jesus come? Emmanuel, God with us to restore that. Uh, Timothy Ward, he says, as the scripture develops, it becomes clear that the primary form in which God works for the redemption of humanity from the curse of sin and death is through, is through his establishment of the covenant. And then he says, a covenant is at heart a relationship established by means of the uttering of a promise. 
What is the heart of the covenant? A heart of relationship. So, for example, I have dozens and dozens of definitions of covenants in my notes. Here are two, just so you can see. So, for example, Thomas Reiner in his book about the covenant, he says, a biblical, he defines a biblical covenant as a chosen relationship. Relationship. A covenant is always a relationship in which two parties making, make binding promises to each other. Gentry and Wellam, they say, at the heart of the covenant then is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness and what? Loyal, loyalty. In love. That's the word hesed. God always reveals himself as faithful and rich in hesed. His covenantal loving kindness. That's why when Paul tells the church that we must speak the truth in love, he's using covenantal language. Truth, faithfulness, love. He's not talking about you speak the harsh things but covered with love. No. He's talking about covenantal language, how we must approach each other as the character of God. He's true, faithful, filled with love, has said. And that. So we see the, the heart of the covenant is a relationship between two parties. So I have here the heart of the theology of the covenant is the Lord's redemptive promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a relationship between God and man. So you think about the first covenant with Adam. The essence of that covenant is what? God and man dwelling together. Once that covenant is broken, what happens? The relationship is severed. Noah, the covenant with Noah. What is the heart of that covenant? God dwelling with Noah. And he brings Noah into a mountain. We're going to talk more about that next Lord's Day. And he has a meal with Noah, with the sacrifices, preparing his seed so men can dwell with him. The Abrahamic covenant. God promises, I am your God, Abraham. That same promise is repeated to Isaac, to Jacob. You come to the nation of Israel, the Mosaic covenant. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. The Davidic covenant often repeated as how God was with David. I have been with you. The Lord is with David. That's the heart of the covenant. God's presence with him. The new covenant promise in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 33. And now will be their God and they shall be my people. Or Zechariah 8, 8. And now will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. The book of Revelation ends with this covenantal promise. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And John writes to finish Revelation. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers I will have, will have this heritage. And look at the inheritance. 
I will be his God and he will be what? My son, in the son, through Jesus. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the testable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the glorious dream of redemption is our triune God making a way for a people to dwell in His presence and behold His glorious face. And He does that through His covenants. Amen? Life with God in the house of God. Morales says, this was the original goal of the creation of the cosmos. And which then becomes the goal of redemption, the new creation. God dwelling with men. Chris Wood, he says, each successive covenant agreement, listen to this, each successive covenant agreement effectively and progressively unfolded throughout the course of history towards the original intention of the Father's heart. That's beautiful. All these covenants, as the revelation of God was unfolding towards the original intention of the Father's heart, and what is the intention of the Father's heart? To have a people for Himself, through His Son, indwelt with His Spirit, to dwell in His presence forever. That was the intention of His heart from the beginning. Think about the word covenant in Latin. Conveniri, to come together. To bring together two parties. Or even the Hebrew word berit. Had the idea of having a meal together. And the covenant reveals the heart of the Father. Of bringing a people to dwell with Him. And He prepares a table. And He brings His people through His Son. And dwell with His Spirit. To dwell in His glorious presence. Michael Morales, he says... The covenant structure driving redemptive history has one aim. For God's people to be planted on the mountain of God so they may dwell in His house and gaze upon His beauty forever. It's moreover precisely this aim that generates all the dramatic tension in the biblical drama that plummets one into the perplexing dilemma of how a holy God can abide among a sinful people bent upon rebellion. And that lifts, us, lifts up the soul into the mystery of a divine love that opens that way. And that's the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. God opening that way through covenants to bring people to dwell with Him. The gospel is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in this relentless pursuit of bringing a people to dwell with Him. So in Jesus, we have the Amen to the great prayer of the psalmist. Psalm 27 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in His temple, for He will hide me in His shelter 
in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock. One thing I ask, that I may dwell in his temple, dwell in his house, and behold his beauty. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplishes. Bringing God's people to the house of God so we can dwell with him and behold his beauty, gaze upon his beauty. And as we gaze upon his beauty, Paul says that we are transformed from glory to glory. Amen? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great love demonstrated through your plan of redemption, establishing wonderful covenants which find their fulfillment ultimately in Christ Jesus and the new covenant. We thank you that you have answered the psalmist's prayer. One thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and behold His beauty. And in Christ we have this wonderful privilege. That's exactly what's happening right now. Dwelling in your house, dwelling in your tent, beholding your beauty and being transformed. Becoming more and more like Christ. And in your temple, in your presence, there is a shelter. You spread your wings over us and you cover us and you protect us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for bringing us into your presence. There is no other place that we would rather be than being with you, Lord. Worshiping you, serving you, loving you, treasuring you. So thank you. Thank you for Jesus, the perfect mediator. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who drags us and makes this covenant effective in us. It's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen.